0: From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman, thanks for joining us. We're here today with my colleague, Rachel Keith, to talk about our town hall for Board of Education candidates. This was October 5th. This was an event we put on with WECT and Port City Daily. We had eight candidates and we got into a lot of issues with them. And if you've had a chance to watch it, it was an intense 90 minutes So what we're trying to do on this episode of The Newsroom is break down some of the key moments and put some of those comments from the candidates in context and do some fact checking. And so Rachel Keith is here to help me with that. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. Now, you've put a ton of effort into this kind of laying out the evening, some of the high points, the low points, the questionable points. So the first thing I want to get into is the candidates talking about Dr. Charles Faust's leadership. That's the superintendent. Effectively, the board's only employee. Everyone else works for Faust, Faust works for the board. So where should we start?
1: Let's start with incumbent Nelson Bullier. He is up for reelection. He is a CFCC Cape Fear Community College instructor. He's a former military person. And here he is talking about Dr. Faust's leadership.
2: And when we hired Dr. Faust, the thing I was most focused on was ethics because you can teach anybody anything, but you can't teach somebody to be more ethical. Uh, You know, there've been a lot of wonderful successes under Dr. Faust, including a new strategic plan. Uh, He's worked with our county commissioners to help our teachers become the number one paid teachers in the state. He worked with our commissioners again to make sure that our teachers could move to the front of the line to get vaccinated. So yeah, you know, we have to hold him accountable We have that strategic plan, we have goals, we have a path that we are on right now as a board, and it's Dr. Faust's job to manage that vision and to get us there. But when you hold people accountable, you're not always going to be the most popular guy. So when everybody says, yeah, we have this problem in our schools, we have this problem in our schools, and then Dr. Faust says it, he's not always a warm, cuddly guy, but he's an ethical man, and I think he's the guy to get us to where we need to go.
1: So Democratic candidate Nelson bullier he is consistently, when I watch him at these board meetings, telling them to support the decisions of central office. They are the experts. And that includes what Dr. Faust wants for the district. He's acknowledging here, yes, he's not the most amical person, but he maintains ethics and continues to support his leadership. And you heard him say the buzzword of the night, which was keeping him accountable. And most of the other... Candidates said that they are going to work to hold him accountable, but we had one candidate, Melissa Mason, she's a Republican, she's a former educator, and she attends a lot of these call to the audiences each month for the board, but this is what she had to say about Dr. Faust.
3: I believe that Dr. Faust needs to be fired. And I've spoken with many individuals within our community who are dissatisfied with his job that he has done. We have plenty of cause to fire him. We just need the will to use it.
0: So I just want to make a quick note here. Mason is talking about legally cause to fire the superintendent because he is a contracted employee. Um, The district is still kind of dealing with the fallout from the separation agreement with Dr. Tim Markley that cost the district just shy of a quarter million dollars. And many people have argued that it's because they did not uh, have a fully developed cause to fire him. So when people talk about holding Faust accountable and possibly firing him, the issue that always comes up is, is there sort of a legal cause to get out of that contract.
1: Yeah, and to be fair to Melissa Mason, at another call to the audience, she asked to see his evaluation, and that evaluation is a personnel record. The board can vote unanimously to release it if it's in the public good, but they have not done that at this point. And to be fair to all the candidates, both sides have had issues with Dr. Faust for several different reasons. But again, Melissa was the only one who outright said she would work to fire him. Pete Wildebor, who's a current board member, he is a Republican. He also said that the incoming board needs to, quote, help him improve or help him move out the door. And I wanted to add some additional context to the evening. Three of the board candidates, Veronica McLaurin-Brown, she's a Democratic candidate, Pat Bradford's a Republican candidate, and Josie Barnhart is also a Republican candidate, said at the panel they had a meeting with the current chair, board chair, that's Stephanie Craybill, and Dr. Faust. So I followed up with the district and said, what was this meeting about? And they responded, quote, this was a meet and greet for Dr. Faust, senior leadership, and the board chair. It was held on the 27th of September in two sessions, one beginning at 9 a.m. and the other at 2 p.m. All candidates were invited.
0: Yeah. So moving on, uh, we also heard from current board member Judy Justice about Faust. She's a Democratic uh, candidate for re-election now. And Judy's had some pretty public barrings with Dr. Faust and talked about the fact that they've had some difficult communication. She, unlike Mason, did not say that she wanted to you know, outright fire Faust. She did say um, that she is still trying to work with him. But we also asked her about her role in the board's dysfunction. I mean, the board has had some issues with Faust, but the board has had some issues with each other. So this is what Judy had to say about, you know, some of that contention that we've seen over the last couple of years.
4: There are still some factions on the board that no matter what comes up, it's a no because of the people that say it as opposed to whether it's a good idea for the kids or not. That's not how we're supposed to function. There's also extreme rudeness and some behavior coming from leadership that's shocking. It's been going on now, sadly, for months and getting, it's escalating. And if people are reelected to the board, that were are having problems before at some point, you know, and I'm, I'm one of them, we need to really try harder. As I said, I'm working very well with members of the board and we're definitely doing some good things.
1: So she didn't come right out and say that she owns part of the dysfunction, but kind of hinted at this at the end. But she maintains that Dr. Faust is leading the disorganization in the district. And she mentioned at the panel that he doesn't even talk to her. And she is a board member who's supposed to oversee his leadership. So... Take that what you will. She also has a lot of direct conflict with the current board chair, who is Stephanie Craybell. She is not up for re-election, and she has often sparred with current members, Nelson Bollier, who again is a candidate, and Stephanie Adams, and she is not running for re-election.
0: Yeah, and I'm just a very quick note, I will say that the last two years have been really tough on some of the board members and a lot of intimidation and in some, in some cases outright threats from political groups in the area have made it unpalatable for some people to run again. All right, so moving on, we had a lot of questions for the candidates. Some came from reporters, some came from the audience, but these were questions for individual candidates. You know, we wanted to ask them about a specific issue that they'd either been involved with or spoken out on, and one of them involved the the so-called calendar controversy with Nelson Bollier. Give us a little history on that.
1: Yeah, So they the school board was even debating trying to change this year's calendar because supposedly the calendar committee last October voted to approve the high schoolers to end in December. But unfortunately, for some people in the district who have voiced their concerns, it's now ending in January. So Nelson is a part of this committee. And here's what he had to say over this controversy.
2: Come 2022-2023 school year, the mandated start date was August 29th. That created a 13-day semester imbalance, which would have greatly impacted and hurt our students who were taking biology in the first semester, who were taking English in the first semester. It gave them almost three weeks less time to master those core subjects, prepare for their EOCs, And get their job done once our central office staff realized the severity of the imbalance they thought about it they recalled our calendar committee and they said look we're sacrificing too much Uh, we're sacrificing too many students and we should change so they went back they reconstituted that committee and the committee voted unanimously to make that change it is absolutely not perfect
1: Some of the opponents of what Nelson is saying, they are saying that high schoolers are duly, some of them are duly enrolled at Cape Fear Community College or University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And they say it's hard for the kids to get on that schedule along with their high school schedule. They conflict with this one that they've adopted. And some of the teachers who have voiced their concerns, they have said it's hard for these kids to come back after the holidays and then take their exams. But Nelson is defending the ultimate decision to maintain this year's calendar.
0: So next up, we had a question for candidate Veronica McLaren brown who most people got to know first as an advocate for the Love Our Children group, um, which was aimed at ending suspensions for young students in the district. Uh, she's now moved on to become a candidate for the school board. We asked her, what was something that people don't understand or, or misunderstand about the board's actual power? And this was an attempt to suss out how well she knows the job she's effectively applying for here with the public. So we asked her uh, We asked her that question, and um, she said a thing people don't really understand from her point of view is the budget. So here's Veronica McLaren-Brown.
5: And understanding that when you have budget coming in from the county, the uh, federal government, the state, and also from grants, the codes that outline how you can use that money and um, all the rules that are associated with whether or not you can, you have the money here and you want to pay, you want to increase wages, and they know the money is there, but you're not allowed to use the money. Just based on being in the school board meetings from March 2021 to today, and listening to the bus drivers, and listening to the teachers and teacher assistants, they certainly expressed a lot of concern in terms of just not believing that we aren't able to provide those increases.
1: So Democratic candidate Veronica McLaurin-Brown there And to be fair, I had to prompt her a little bit about some ideas that she could discuss, and she's right that the budget does come from federal, state, and local, and it is very complicated. And what she's likely referencing, as I followed this in my reporting, is that the TAs, the teacher assistants and classified staff, they really wanted the district to use federal ESSER funding, that's federal basically COVID relief funding, and it's millions and millions of dollars. And they wanted them to fund wage increases. The district ultimately gave out bonuses from this fund, but they could not maintain a wage increase with these non-recurring funds, is what they said. And they said any meaningful wage increase, the district said, would have to come from the state or the county. And the state did increase slightly, depending on how many years you've taught. And the county, some of the board members took it to the county commissioners to ask for this, and they said no.
0: Every candidate who is a layperson who comes to any government body has a very steep learning curve. And the budget process is probably the most complicated thing that anyone has to learn with. Um, I think a lot of people in the public were confused. And certainly some people even within those organizations had trouble figuring it all out. Moving on, this was not really interesting question. I believe this was a, um, an audience question for Pete Wildeboer. He's a Republican. He's, uh, he's an incumbent and they asked him how he felt about collective bargaining for teachers. Now of course this is not a decision the board can make and in North Carolina it's currently against the law for government employees to collectively bargain. Now you can have unions for you know the private industry but government employees can't can unionize. So this is what Pete Voldemort had to say about that.
6: I came from uh, New Jersey. Don't throw anything at me at this point but I actually uh, taught one year in New Jersey before coming down here and uh, I remember when I left New Jersey, uh, as a football coach, I was making, I don't know exactly, but I came down here for a similar job and was making over $1,000 less per sport. So I think it's very important that we give that, that, you know, give our educators the right to get the the highest dollar they possibly can, and I would support that. That's a question that would be beyond our realm of influence, but as far as my personal idea, I think that's a great idea. I've heard from several of my colleagues that we are, I think 47th on the list of uh, paid, um, you know, as far as comparing to others, other states. And I think our educators, by, par, you know, by far, do a great job. So I think that they deserve more money.
1: And so this question, yeah, Ben, actually came from New Hanover County Association of Educators, and it's not a union, but it is an advocacy organization on the part of teachers and staff, and they do have a lot of sway with some legislators in Raleigh. And it's interesting to know that Pete, who's an incumbent, he's a Republican. He's more or less in favor of collective bargaining, and I will say in watching the school board deliberations, Pete was adamant about the ask for the county commission for the 17th an hour minimum for classified staff. He's continued to advocate for higher pay for teachers and staff. So Pete is, this is his record that he's been campaigning on and that he has been doing as a board member. And according to the U.S. Department of Education, the most recent data from on teacher salaries, North Carolina, in comparison to other states, They just have data from 20 to 21 school year and currently from that list North Carolina ranks 34th in the country for teacher pay at $54,392. So people look at different rankings and scales and sometimes they look at veteran teachers versus beginning teachers. So I went straight to the Department of Education to get this number.
0: Uh, We can say uh, we've seen this over the last couple of years. The pandemic has shifted the conditions of labor and how people get compensated. So these numbers are changing all the time as every state tries to deal with it in its own way, and in many cases, each county within each state. So these numbers can get very confusing. So if someone tells you where we rank, ask them where they got it from and what slice of time it's from, because it's changing all the time. Exactly. So talking about teacher support and pay, we asked Judy Justice about this, and here's what she had to say.
4: These
1: amazing
4: people, And the other staff, they were working 60, 80 hours a week, obviously not getting compensated under a lot of stress. And then on top of the pandemic, and I hate to keep going back to this, our leadership has not done what it needs to do in order to make our teachers feel like they are respected and appreciated. So at this point, it's obviously, if nothing else, we need to get funding for resources. We need to be pressuring the state. We need to get more money from the county commissioners. We, right now, are the fifth wealthiest county in the state. We also have $1.5 billion sitting in the bank from the hospital sale and $388 million in an emergency fund that they refused to touch, even though it was promised to them at the time of the sale of schools, the public schools. So we need, honestly, at this point, possibly new people on the county commissioners. We need new people possibly in Raleigh.
1: So according to a recent study that you and I looked at on investment income, property value and per capita income, New Hanover County ranks eighth in the state for this wealth. And Ben, you've been doing a lot of research on the hospital sale money. So why don't you go ahead and take that one?
0: Yeah, uh, this is something Judy Justice has brought up several times during board meetings and during our, um, our primary election coverage. So just to lay out the facts here. The $1.5 billion she's talking about, that is it's actually $1.25 billion, that did come from the sale of New Hanover Regional Medical Center, to On Health, that is currently now in a private nonprofit foundation that is not a government entity, much to the frustration of some transparency hawks and journalists and me. Um, but that $1.25 billion is invested in various markets. It will, once it's fully up to speed, generate about $50 million annually in grants. The grant decisions are made by the board of this nonprofit, the New Hanover County Endowment. And that
1: could go to the schools. And it
0: could go to the schools. And what Judy is referring to is the fact that there are you know, four main areas that the, the community endowment looks at. One of them is education. But it, is, it would be inaccurate to say that $1.25 billion is owed to the schools. The $388 million she's talking about, that's $350 million that the county put directly into their bank accounts, into their coffers, from the sale of the hospital. $50 million of that is earmarked for mental and behavioral health. The county, I believe in early September, came out with a high-level 30,000-foot strategic plan on how to use that money. It's actually being used alongside the opioid settlement money, but there are no specific details like again. Again, some of that could go into resources for the school, but probably not all of it. The $300 million that is currently being called a revenue stabilization fund, that takes a super majority of the board of commissioners to use, of so four out of the five commissioners. And as of right now, they've only used a very small amount. Um, we recently heard during our town hall for Board of Commission candidates, I believe it was 7 to $10 million. Most of that money is still invested. And many of the candidates and current commissioners are kind of looking at, at that as like a rainy day fund for, you know, a disaster. But uh, we have not heard any public plans to put that money into the school system. So those are the facts on those dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is probably a good time to take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back. We have a lot more to get into, a lot more questions for our candidates. So stay tuned. You're listening to The Newsroom. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm News Director Ben Shockman here with my colleague Rachel Keith, and we are digging into our recent town hall for Board of Education candidates. So next up, Dorian Cromartie. First, tell us a little bit about Dorian, Rachel.
1: Dorian has campaigned on his work volunteering in the public schools, and that is mainly at Rachel Freeman. That is a family member of his, and he served in the military like Nelson Bollier, and now he is a Democratic candidate for the new Hanover County Board of Education. And we asked him, he's been pretty vocal about bus driver pay and classified staff pay. So let's hear what he had to say about that.
7: One of the things that we need to start with is paying our bus drivers more when they start. Uh, We also have to look at the fact that the cost of living here costs for $21 an hour. I think that we also need to start looking into paying for our bus drivers to become bus drivers meaning that we will pay for the training, we will contract you out for X amount of years to retain you, and then get them in turn to recruit other people to be bus driver aides while they're driving, and then those bus driver aides can then in turn also become bus drivers. I mean, if you want someone to work for you, you have to give them a reason to. A lot of people Are not becoming bus drivers would like to become bus drivers but the cost to do the training is too expensive three hundred dollars is a lot
1: so i reached out to the district to ask them about this specifically and they said quote they cover the upfront cost of becoming a bus driver candidates are only responsible for thirty dollars upfront, which is later reimbursed this is the fee that has to be paid at the department of motor vehicles So they offered a counter to that $300 amount that he cited. And this livable wage, it's really interesting. We have discussed this ad nauseum that it's really hard to decide what a livable wage is because you have to put in the number of adults in that household and the number of children in that household. So depending on who's in that household, this dictates a livable wage. But I often hear that... People use MIT's livable wage calculator you can put in the city of Wilmington. You can put in new Hanover County. Also, Cape Fear Collective has done a lot of work on trying to understand what people need to be paid to work in this community.
0: Yeah. And again, like, you know, teacher pay, like any other statistic like this, it's changing all the time, uh, as we've reported elsewhere. Rents in the New Hanover County and southeastern North Carolina area have recently been adjusted upwards by around 20 to 25, and in some cases 30 percent, meaning some people saw their rent jump by two to $300. Obviously, that has a huge impact on what a livable wage is. So, again, when someone quotes you a stat, uh, ask them exactly where they got it from and what slice of time it was from. And Dorian, uh, his point here too was that, you know, this is such an important part of the education puzzle. And I'm paraphrasing here. Basically, you could have the best school in the world. If you can't get your kids there on time, what's the point? So we had uh, another question for Dorian Cromarty, And this was about an issue we have heard and talked a lot about here at WHQR. And that is safety and mental health in the schools. So here's what he had to say.
7: So one of the things they have already done is having one point of entry at the schools. Another thing we could work on is providing more exterior cameras at the schools. Another thing we could also work on is our relationship with our SROs and our mental health workers. I think that an SRO should be the last resource in any situation at the schools. I think first that we should provide mental health counseling for our students And then we also need to probably get a little bit involved with the home life as well. I think that we also need to make sure that we use more data-driven practices when it comes to our SROs, that we're not just throwing more money at SROs and probably throw some money directly in the classroom to help the students and staff.
1: So I did a report A couple of months ago and the county has provided almost two million dollars in additional funding for SROs and this was basically to cover each SRO per elementary school and they also are sending more into these what they call impact zones so trying to beef that up and when I asked them about how the county tracks their progress the county said that their evaluation is up to the sheriff's office and the sheriff's office unfortunately didn't provide comment to me either about how they evaluate their effectiveness. Dorian, in a follow-up question that I asked him, said he would like for that data to be transparent. And also Pete Wildebor, the Republican incumbent, mentioned during his opening statement that a few weeks ago, quote, I'm quoting him, we had a child die on one of our campuses and he also mentioned the shooting from New Hanover High School in August of 2021. So this is on a lot of the candidates' minds, and technically, Ben and I looked this up that the kid did not necessarily die on the campus, but the kid was in New Hanover County Schools.
0: Yeah, and I'll just say very quickly, um, the one point of entry and the potential of doing sort of um, protective vestibules to sort of add another layer of security around the entrance and leaving the school has been discussed. That is a thing that we're working on. But what we hear from folks in the school is that for very good fire safety reasons, you have to have multiple doors. You can't, I mean, imagine a fire in a school the size of Ashley High School and only having one exit. It would be a disaster. And so the schools are porous. It's just a fact of life, Um, any building that large with that many people in it. And so There are still ongoing discussions about how to really secure these buildings without making them feel like a penitentiary. That is the flip side of that argument. All right. So moving on, we asked Veronica McLaren-Brown about student discipline. And this is an issue she knows very well. As we said, she started out her sort of path to the Board of Education as an advocate to get rid of suspensions for young students. So the question is... What then do you do if you are not going to suspend or the related issue, if you're not going to use seclusion rooms for students who have severe behavioral issues, what do you do? So this was McLaren Brown's response.
5: I would like for the system to make sure that we support our staff with the resources that they need. And if they need additional uh, assistance, if they need additional social workers, It is the job of this school board to advocate and get those resources that they need. And most importantly, I want the teachers to tell us what they need, and let's get it done.
1: So Veronica was a former teacher, administrator, too, in the school system a while back, and here she didn't necessarily elaborate on what should be done with disruptive students because we have heard that it can involve violence. It can involve hitting. It can involve some serious misbehavior. So we don't really know how she feels in this specific response, how that behavior should be handled. She did mention, yes, and this is what I hear from teachers when I talk to them, they need more support staff to deal with unruly students. But often we also hear teachers saying that they're to deal with the behavior on their own. And yes, there are administrators, there are assistant administrators, there are support staff, but think about how many students that they have to deal with. I mean, they can't help in every single situation. And teachers to be fair, are in charge of their own classroom management. But this is still a hard issue to deal with and getting some concrete details on what do you do with someone who is disrupting the environment of the class because those other students deserve to learn too.
0: Yeah, and many of the advocates we've heard from have had children who have had personally had bad interactions with seclusion rooms. If they're used improperly, it could be very traumatic for children. And we have seen them use very strong language towards the board for not completely eliminating this process. Nelson Bollier spoke about this briefly, saying, you know, it's hard to be called a monster. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's, it's hard to be vilified for this. I will say it's easy to see how a parent in that situation would be very, very passionate. And it's also easy to see how a teacher could be in a very difficult situation without any other recourse of what to do with a student like that. I will say, having looked around the state at some other counties that use this practice, and some are facing lawsuits for it, Uh, New Hanover County has been more open about the conversation. It doesn't mean they necessarily have the solution, but they have been more transparent about the struggle to to deal with it. So,
1: yes. And all the board candidates, that is their end goal. Even Republicans and Democrats are pretty much on the same page. And it looks like there might be a likely vote on ending this practice this year.
0: Yeah. So moving on, um, another issue that parents have been very outspoken about is their role in their children's education. People call this the parental rights movement. And Josie Barnhart, uh, she is a Republican candidate running for the school board. She has been very outspoken about this. Um, So here's what she said about how she feels about parents not being involved enough in the curriculum.
8: And in the curriculum committee, it was brought up by our educators. How are we going to ensure consistent, unbiased teaching is occurring? Okay, so there is absolutely an element of concern of that, yet parents don't have access. So if we don't have access, what happens? It's this, it's this big monster of potential what could be taught. And so when you look about things as either good or bad, yes or no, you're not looking for what is the purpose. The purpose is we're supposed to be educating our kids, and if our parents know what is being taught, then we can have accountability in the classroom and we can ensure that well-rounded teaching is occurring. So this came up in one of the town halls. The board
1: has had two of these, technically three, but legitimate two. And Judy Justice has answered this before. Parents do have access to the curriculum by contacting their teacher, the school's administrator, by going to the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction standard course of study. And also, NCDPI's committees, they have their agendas, they have their meeting minutes out there, you can follow what they are doing. and. Full disclosure, I was a former teacher too, and there was so much pressure to put all of your content online, to answer parents' questions, to get them involved, because if you do get them involved, the kid is going to do better because you're a unified force to help that student. So I think there are avenues that parents can go to to find out what their kids are learning.
0: Yeah, and we we don't have time to go all the way down this rabbit hole, but I will say I've spoken to a lot of parents who do have very very passionate concerns about what's being taught in the school, whether that's, um, you know, stuff about gender identity, stuff about history. They are not happy with it, but they had, to be fair, not been engaged in their child's education until the pandemic. And when students were learning from home, you know, imagine a student sitting in front of a laptop, sitting at the kitchen table. Parents are in the house because they are also working from home or on unemployment because the pandemic. All of a sudden, for the first time, are sure. seeing what their children are actually learning in school. Many parents voiced many concerns. Some, some thought the curriculum was too easy. Some thought it was too hard. And some objected to the content. But a lot of this comes from a very recent uh, situation where, again, for the first time for a lot of parents, they were actually seeing what their kids were learning for better or worse.
1: Sure. And they have the right to voice that, of course. Yeah. All right.
0: So moving on. um, We also asked Josie Barnhart about the redistricting question. It's more or less uh, an open secret that New Hanover County is segregated. And the question is, what do we do about it? And, well, first let's hear what Barnhart had to say about it, and then we'll get into the details.
8: People in the past who had done redistricting, I wasn't a part of that. So with that being said, I believe that all children can learn. When you hold kids accountable to the highest standard, that's what they're going to rise up to become. What I've seen happen over the last few years, it's been very evident, is a shift, rather than academic excellence, we're talking on whole child development of the school system. When you open that door, what you are doing, schools are now responsible for something beyond academics. We have five, failing schools and 8D schools right now. To change that role of schools to now, in addition to the horrible academics that we are currently setting, you're also in charge of developmental needs of all children. I think we're setting up a lot of parents and teachers to not be successful. And yes, I did fact check this.
1: She's right. The district does have 8D schools and 5F schools. She's referencing Port City Daily's coverage of the recently released North Carolina Department of Public Instruction's accountability report. This came out in September. And what this report shows is that these low-performing schools have larger pockets of low-income students. And her response didn't address redistricting to address those inequities necessarily, but she just said you need to have a higher standard for all students and that teachers shouldn't have to focus on this whole child development but just focus on academics and that would potentially change the situation, according to
8: Josie.
0: Yeah. And again, uh, another issue for a whole other podcast. But the conversations we've had with educators in the past, including yourself, Rachel Key, is one of the issues is segregation is about race, but it's also about income level. And lower income students tend statistically to have more ACEs, adverse childhood events these students require more help in the classroom and the more of them you put together in a classroom well you've seen what happens when children misbehave one kid misbehaves it's a little bit like popcorn right so those classrooms with a higher concentration of low-income students who because of a lot of (laughs) historical issues including systemic racism structural racism tend to be minorities black and hispanic when you concentrate them in a classroom it is more difficult for the students and students performances fall so the traditional way of fixing this sometimes at the order of the United States Supreme Court, has been to redistrict, to send kids from low-income minority neighborhoods to other districts to make sure you have a more equitable mix of races and income levels in every classroom. The question that Barnhart is kind of getting at is, do you need to redistrict or can you provide additional resources or change the way you're teaching in an individual classroom to get better results? So one way to do that would be a lot more resources for in-class support. The, the counter argument that we have heard from instructors is that without whole child development, without some kind of emotional learning about how to manage your emotions and how to deal with life, those kids are going to have issues in the classroom. That's going to interfere with their learning process. And it's going to interfere with their peers' learning process. Yeah, so and it's, it's about
1: compl- focus. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And it's 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 very complicated. So. Credit where it's due, you know, Barnhart had 90 seconds to respond to an issue that we could talk about for hours. All right, moving on, but still talking about this issue of what's actually being taught in the classroom. This is no secret. This has been part of the, let's just call it the culture war over how students are being taught and what they're being taught. Pete Wildeboer was asked about comments he's made about
6: critical race theory. So here's Pete Wildeboer. Well, if you remember, that came up in the June meeting before where... Uh, Our superintendent stood up and said we are not teaching CRT and I brought up the the fact that uh, Brunswick County actually passed a policy uh, Blocking CRT the uh, state government actually had two different um, Laws put in front of the governor which he vetoed that said we will not teach CRT So obviously there is CRT. Uh, I actually went through uh, our deputy uh, superintendent at the time uh, Miss Smith actually went through the the whole framework at that time which she did a very nice job in, in presenting it, but though I, I brought the glossary, I had exactly each and every word there, and she had to admit that they are actually in there. So um, we need to teach, we need to know our students, and that's what it comes all all the way back to, is giving every student the, the best education we can.
1: So to be clear, North Carolina Department of Public Instruction does not have the phrase critical race theory in the curriculum, nor does New Hanover County Schools, And what he's referring to is this happened at a meeting in July 2021. So this was not last June. And it's not over the term CRT. But there were terms in this glossary like bias and systemic racism. And unfortunately, in history class, there have been people who have expressed these qualities or engaged in this type of racism. Let's take Jim Crow laws, for example, that kids have to learn about at certain levels in history. So these are things that have happened in history and teachers have to discuss it and there are words for them so there's not a specific CRT outline but Pete is right that Brunswick County Schools did pass a policy that specifically does not allow CRT to be taught and so he's basically saying why don't we just do that
0: yeah and uh, once again critical race theory is taught at graduate level law schools but that is not being taught in elementary middle or or high schools no. CRT is often used as kind of a dog whistle for people who are upset that the teaching of history about the United States is sometimes not favorable to the United States because the United States government has done some very bad things. And some people think that that is un-American to teach that. Other people disagree. So I think that's a good place for a quick break. We will be back. We are not done with the culture wars. So stay tuned. You're listening to The Newsroom. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm News Director Ben Shockman here with my colleague Rachel Keith, and we are unpacking our town hall for Board of Education candidates. Before the break, we were talking about Pete Wildeboer and his concerns over CRT and what CRT really is and what some people are kind of alluding to when they say CRT. There's also social emotional learning, which sometimes gets thrown in the same bucket of CRT, especially from conservative critics of modern public education. And we asked candidate Pat Bradford about this. She's a Republican candidate. She's the owner and publisher of Riceville Beach magazine, a grandmother and a mother. And uh, she's been a guardian ad litem and some other volunteering work. We asked her about social emotional learning, which is something that she has spoken about in the past. Now this is from June, 2021, where she was speaking as a concerned resident and a parent and a grandparent at the call to the audience at the New Hanover County Board of Education. So here's Pat Bradford and just a quick note, she uses some language here that some people might find insensitive.
9: My name is Pat Bradford, researching social emotional learning equity, diversity, and inclusion. I felt the pain of the oppressed, the black man, the red men, the yellow man. My body was my own. No government was going to tell me what I could do and could not do. I didn't respect the sanctity of marriage. I didn't respect the nuclear family. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like EDI, SEL, and CRT. No matter what you call it, this curriculum is the same. And you may be sold out to it, you may be Uh, have approved its adoption, you may have signed the contract already, you may be implementing it, but know this, we the people are not with you. Open your minds here, you're being deceived, and I beg you to reconsider,
1: reject this intolerant and basically evil curriculum. So this isn't her entire two-minute speech, but a majority of it. You can go to the district's YouTube page to watch this June 2021 speech. It's at the timestamp 404. Okay, now let's fast forward to how she responded to her comments at this meeting during the panel when I asked her about it last week. I
9: don't remember saying those words exactly the way you've quoted them.
1: Yeah, if you go to that that meeting at 404, the timestamp's there. Okay. Um.
9: I am a big proponent of the four core subjects, reading, writing, math, and civics. Social emotional learning is taking the place of our core subjects, our traditional education. I have said that many times. I don't use the word CRT because it's such a broad umbrella for the things that are happening in the schools, but I do think that devoting 15 minutes every day in the curriculum for social emotional feelings would be better spent teaching
1: children to read? So I did reach out to the district about their curriculum on social emotional learning. And if you go to their main curriculum page, there's no mention of social emotional learning on this page. There is a page dedicated to this, though, that these are interventions that are woven into the classroom management. And there is no mention of this instruction taking place of academic work, nor a specific time frame for this instruction teachers do continue to teach the course subjects. It's not replacing any of these that she's mentioning. And you did hear her use the word CRT. And when I asked her to define this was a follow up what social emotional learning is, she said she's still researching it. But previously, she said she'd already done her research and didn't provide a definition. She did say that feelings are, quote, awesome and that there needs to be more mental health supports available to students. And we mentioned this earlier, Ben. She said, quote, where's the mythical $50,000 for mental health the county promised? And like you said, it's actually $50 million And the county is that wouldn't all go to the schools necessarily could go to a larger outreach network. So there you go.
0: Yeah. I also want to note that over the years, Pat Bradford has moderated some of her rhetoric. Um, but it's worth going back and noting that she has made some pretty strong statements at a series of call to the audience.
1: I've documented most of them, and they're pretty strong accusations. You can see this pattern from July 2021, September, October of that year, November of 2021. She says, quote, masks make people sick, quote, you the board are about power, control and greed. You are puppets of the federal government. Stop sexualizing our kids. Stop teaching them anti-American values. It's time to stop the anti-white, anti-Christian and anti-family curriculum. She said, it's time to stop. We have your number. And there's this roar of applause. And then in both July and August of 2022, this year, during these public comment periods, she read explicit material out of context from All Boys Aren't Blue and then Another Time Out of Darkness. And Ben, you followed this.
0: Yeah, we've done some reporting on allegations that there is illegally obscene material in the schools. Uh, The sheriff's office actually conducted an investigation of nine books after they received a parent complaint. District Attorney Ben David basically told law enforcement that there wasn't legal grounds to prosecute, and it's completely understandable that parents would have concerns about the material in the schools. In fact, Ben David himself said he might have concerns about the kind of material that he was looking at, but it's not illegal. The First Amendment and state law does protect it. And one of the key issues here when you're looking at the law is that you're looking at the literary merit of a work. You're looking at the entire work. The example I have often used is that if you were to just show children a graphic scene of nudity and violence from, say, Schindler's List. Um, that would be extremely problematic because those scenes only make sense in the broader context of the artistic work. So by taking one particular section out of context, pulling it out of the book and just reading that for shock value, I I think that's a disingenuous representation of what the book is about. This is a complicated subject uh, probably for an entire other episode of The Newsroom, but that's what I could say for now. So I want to move on to uh, Melissa Mason. And in our primary election town hall... Melissa accused the school district of grooming. She has made similar comments at other events. This was not a one-off. So we asked her about that claim, that allegation, and this is what she had to say.
3: When I initially heard about the gender support plan, which is where all of this started, and honestly, it's about transgender kids. And here's the thing. Our trans kids, absolutely, we need to be concerned about because they have a higher suicide rate But the problem is when you separate them from their community, their family, and you keep secrets from their parents, you're isolating the most vulnerable. It's damaging and it's dangerous to do. We need to love our kids no matter what. It does not matter whether they are gay, straight, or trans. We have to protect them from early sexualization. And that is where I first saw the gender support plan was where I first saw that grooming that was beginning to happen.
0: So a couple things I want to say about this. First, the district is no longer using that gender support plan. And that is, in my opinion, largely to do with parents appearance of a New Hanover County uh, mother on the Candace Owens show. She called out Title IX coordinator Jarrell Lewis by name, which is probably uncomfortable for him, put a lot of pressure and public scrutiny on the district. The gender support plan was... Uh, designed to basically navigate between two rocky shores. So it's for situations where you have a student whose gender identity has changed or is different than what their family or birth certificate says, and they're not getting support from their family. If a student is getting support from their family, it's kind of a non, it's less of an issue. It's not a non-issue, but it's less of an issue. So what do you do if you've got a student who says, my gender identity is female and my parents don't support me? the gender support plan was designed to say, okay, we will we will treat you as female to the best of our ability, we will support you, but the end game here is bringing your parents or guardians in for a conversation. And this was represented as keeping secrets from the parents, and I think that is a misrepresentation because the end goal was bringing the parents and guardians in to have that conversation. But if you take it and take a slice of time at a certain point of time, the district might be treating a student a way that it was not telling the parents or guardians about that is true but the schools in an incredibly difficult situation of trying to negotiate between the parents rights to know and the students right to be supported and that gender sport plan is now off the table so it's it's a difficult situation
1: and the plan was not grooming
0: that's the other thing is that this argument hinges on the representation of any conversation about anything involving sexual identity gender identity or or anything in that sort of sphere with explicit sexual content what mason is saying is that grooming which is the process of slowly introducing someone to more and more sexual content until they are okay with inappropriate levels of it for the end purpose of sexually molesting or abusing that child is what's happening in the school and to say that having a conversation about gender identity of the student is the same as what Michael Kelly did, the, uh, the now convicted former New Hanover County teacher, is, is disingenuous at best. And I bring up Michael Earl Kelly because there is something to what some of these candidates say about not trusting the district. Candidates, as you've pointed out, Rachel Keith, on both sides of the aisle, have accused the district of being secretive, of not being transparent, of misinforming people. And historically, that has been true. The county is currently dealing with the fallout from that in court right now, and it has had no shortage of negative news coverage of the bad actions it has taken. So there is an earned distrust of the district. But what we are seeing is people in the public sphere, in some cases candidates, weaponizing that very legitimate mistrust for their own purposes. So yes, the school was not honest about things in the past. That doesn't necessarily mean that any accusation made whether it's Judy Justice or Pete Wildebar is necessarily true.
1: Yeah, the facts have to bear this out for the grounds of the mistrust.
0: Yeah. So that's just about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. So, Rachel Keith, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks also to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's show or ideas for a future episode, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman, reminding you that early voting runs from October 20th to November 5th, and the general election is on November 8th. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.